Corinthians. It's been a while since we went through 1 Corinthians, but we haven't gone through 2 Corinthians, and so this is a part of our journey through the Bible. Um, I'll refresh your memory. The city of Corinth was a, was a rough place. It was there on the, it was near Athens, there in the southern part of Greece, um, in an area that was really corrupt and and just all sorts of idolatry and weirdness there. Corinth was sort of a sort of an ancient version of a Las Vegas or something. Just had that that connotation of being a creepy place where where creepy people lived. And and it was a tough place to be a Christian for sure. And Paul had started the church there in Corinth on his first missionary journey and and he had found out that there was all kinds of bad things happening in the church. Part of it was because some people from one of the house churches there in Corinth had contacted him and let him know of some of the things that were going on. A part of it also was just that they had asked him questions about certain things, and they were obviously confused and messed up about a lot of things. And so he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to straighten out a lot of the serious errors that were there in the church in, in Corinth. Um, and, I mean, some of it was bad stuff. They, For instance, they were having communion service, and, and they had a thing called the Nagape feast where they would have the whole potluck, and then they would have communion as kind of the culmination of that. Well, people were bringing their own food so that, you know, them and their friends could have great food, but if somebody was new or poor or something like that, they would go without, and they'd be just sitting there at the love feast like, hmm, you know, nothing to eat. And not only that, the people who had the food later started partying at communion, and by the time communion came around, they were pretty drunk. And so Paul had to actually tell them, no, don't get drunk at communion. <laughs> they had other problems. They, there was, there was a, a guy who was having an affair with his stepmother, and the church was thinking, oh, it's pretty cool that we accept somebody like this. And Paul's like, no, that's, that's, that's way over the line of what I'm talking about, grace. The, you know, kick that kid out of the church until he figures out this isn't acceptable. And so, you know, there were all kinds of issues like that. There were people who were denying the resurrection of Christ. And so we have one of the greatest sections in the Bible on the resurrection, a defense of the resurrection there in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so Paul had sent them this letter, and a whole lot of the letter was corrective in nature. Now, he later sent Timothy to hang out there in Corinth, to report back to him kind of how things were going there. And Silas also went there. Titus, he also sent there on a couple of occasions to report back to him how things were going there in Corinth. Now, the book, he had some of that information, and there was a lot of good news. A lot of the things that were messed up in Corinth had been straightened out. And so he was happy about that. But there were some other issues that were still going on there, and a lot of it was that there were people who were coming into positions of importance there in Corinth who were um, really saying bad things about Paul, 
bad-mouthing Paul, questioning whether he was really an apostle, telling the people, oh, Paul doesn't love you. Paul said he was coming back, and he hasn't come back yet, and he's afraid. And they even criticized him because he was short and ugly. And I mean, you name it, they were attacking him. And so a part of 2 Corinthians is to tell them, hey, you're doing good. Some of it was, part of it we'll see um, probably next week is, to tell them that, hey, the kid that you kicked out of church, enough is enough, man. Let the kid back in. He's, he's learned his lesson. Restore him to fellowship. And so a lot of this was there, but also a lot of it is Paul defending his own um, integrity and his own apostleship specifically. And this isn't something that Paul wanted to do, but boy, it, in the process of him doing it, we learn an awful lot about Paul, which is really cool, and we also see, learn a whole lot of great principles for us to understand as a church in the process of Paul addressing some of these sorts of issues. And so it's a, it's a fantastic book, and, and I'm certain that you'll enjoy um, going through it as I will. And let's just jump right into it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He starts out with a very typical greeting for Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul was sent as a missionary, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he knew who he was, and he knew that he was who he was by the will of God. He did what he did, not uh, because he chose himself, not because he had been elected, not because a lot of his friends think he'd be a good apostle. It was by God's will. God was the one who had placed him in that position. And so right off the bat, he's letting them know, I know who I am and I know who put me where I am as an apostle. It's God's will. And then he also, Timothy was with him. Titus was also with him, and we'll find out later. And actually, Titus was the one who had delivered the book of 1 Corinthians to Corinth, he will also be delivering the book of 2 Corinthians to Corinth. And in between those times, he went there at least one other time as well. So Titus had a close relationship with um, Corinth, as did Timothy, as did Paul, as did other people. Apollos was there, um, Priscilla and Aquila were there. A lot, of, a lot of people hovered around there. It was kind of the center of their world as they knew it. Because if you went west, there was Rome and everything that was off there. As you were there in, in Corinth, you were in the middle of, of Greece. And as you headed off to the east, there was Asia Minor and all the churches there. And of course, um, Israel and Jerusalem. And so a lot of people knew a lot of people. Um, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. Achaia was the province of Greece where Corinth was. Athens was also in Achaia. It's in the southern part of the boot of Greece. If you go north, uh, Macedonia is the, when he sometimes refers to Macedonia, and that's the, more the northern part of Greece. So he's saying, you're the church of God, reminding them of who they were and who owned them, and he does that often in the book. Um, but also letting them know that this is a book that's not just, don't take it personal. This is something that I hope all the churches in your area have a chance to, to read and to benefit from it as well. 
grace to you. Boy, we could talk about grace all day long. But that's, he's always coming from grace. Even when he is addressing problems, even when he's a bit upset, he's always letting people know, look, grace, it's about grace. And I want you to understand God's grace, to receive his grace and to pass his grace on to others as well. Grace to you and peace. Of course, when you understand grace, it'll put you at peace. If you don't understand grace, you will never know peace. Because the opposite of grace is flesh and law. It's trying to be good enough on your own. And the harder you try to be good, the less peace you will have. And when you see someone who is not at peace, when you see someone who is is striving, struggling, and not fitting in, um, you can just make a mental note of it. There's someone who I need to pray that they understand God's grace. Because God's grace changes us and it sets us free. It unbinds us. It turns us loose. It draws us close. It allows us to be able to ultimately be gracious to others. And again, you'll never know peace until you learn to be gracious, but you'll never learn to be gracious until you understand how gracious God has been to you. Grace breaks the logjam and frees us up for peace. If you're struggling with peace, take another look at grace. That's probably what's missing. Either you are somehow in your own pride, you're believing that you can be good on your own, or you've been so defeated and so beat up that you've given up and you've opted for condemnation and you're feeling useless and worthless and therefore no peace. Grace lets you know it's okay. You've been taken care of. You've been set free. Now rest in his grace and you'll be at peace no matter what's going on around you. And it comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father and the Son. He's going to talk about the Spirit in a bit as well. Um, it may not seem like a big deal to you, um, because, but there are people who, you know, who act like, who believe that Jesus isn't really God, that somehow he's less than God in some way. Even people who would say that Jesus is God sometimes have the idea that somehow He's God, but he's a littler God. The Father is the real one, and Jesus is the one that's kind of subservient to him. But just a a small note here. Imagine he's saying, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3. Notice how in both cases he's saying the Father and the Son But he doesn't just say the Father and the Son. He's saying the Father and the Lord. Lord is a a title that would say there isn't anyone beneath you. If you're the Lord, even if you're the Lord out of the presence of God, to put the two of them together and say the Father and the Lord, Jesus Christ. The name for God, the name Lord in, the New, in Greek is Kyrios, but the name in the Old Testament, there were a couple of different words for God, and the most personal name for God, which we usually refer to it as Yahweh, it's 
Y-H-W-H um, with no vowel marking, so we it was unpronounceable. No one really knows how it should have been pronounced. They wouldn't even pronounce it as they were reading it, but our Bibles in the Old Testament, when they, when they translate God's personal name of Yahweh, they refer to Lord in all caps. And then there's the Hebrew name Adonai, which is Lord, and that's usually rendered capital L with the small O-R-D. But at any rate, the overwhelming title that's chosen for God is Lord, and yet here and in so many places, making a specific point to put Jesus next to the Father and calling Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't let anyone tell you that Jesus is in any way inferior to the Father, not, not at all. So, he says, blessed be God our, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessing God, just as we were tonight during worship. Just, just saying, he is blessed. He is revered. He is to be praised. He is to be appreciated. I give him credit. I, I bless him. And, and look, though, what it calls him. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He's also the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now he's going to expand that as we continue. But the Father of mercy, <laughs> he's the one who wants to show you mercy. He's the one who wants to say, you don't have to keep destroying yourself. You don't have to pay for your own sin. That's what grace is about. And that's why grace and mercy are so often used together. The truth of grace opens the door to mercy. Mercy means you don't have to pay for your sin. Mercy means, yeah, you deserve judgment, but you don't have to take it. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to pay that price. And he is seen as the father of mercies. He is behind mercy all the way and he's also the god of all comfort boy do we need comfort in this world you know the thing that drives most people nuts is that life is so uncomfortable it's painful it hurts we discover very early as soon as you're even aware of your own existence and even before you're totally aware of your own existence, one of the first things that babies notice when they're born is, this is uncomfortable. And if they're hungry, they're uncomfortable. And if the light's too bright, they're uncomfortable. If the noise is too loud, they're uncomfortable. If somebody is holding them and it's not their parents, they are sometimes uncomfortable. They're wet or whatever, there's this constant awareness of discomfort. And there isn't much that better describes life in this world than uncomfortable. But Paul knows uncomfortable. He knows what it is to suffer. And now he tries to give that a context, and he, he first talks about that God is the God of all comfort. He wants to meet us when we're uncomfortable. And he wants to provide comfort to us. He wants us to, to learn to rely on him, to relate to him, to depend on him as being the one who comforts us. And of course, the Holy Spirit 
And that's why it's interesting in the context because it's, he's already talked about the Father and the Son, but often the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with you. The Holy Spirit's role is to be with us, to comfort us, to meet us where we are. But also, as we're going to see here, God provides that comfort often through other people. And really, a lot of times when comfort works the best is when people do their jobs as people and are there to comfort each other, to learn to, to help to relieve the pain of others, to, to be able to be a blessing to them, to be um, a physical manifestation of that which God always wants to do. Meet us in our uncomfortableness and help us to find that comfort. But he's the God of all comfort. Verse 4, who comforts, comforts us in all our tribulation, whatever hurts, whatever is difficult, he comforts us in all of them. Now, you might go, I've had tribulations and God just didn't comfort me. Well, somehow you missed what he wanted to do to comfort you. It was his intention to be there. Now, maybe some person didn't do what they're supposed to do, but even then, God is there and available and willing and able to provide comfort to us. That's the norm. When life hurts, when life is uncomfortable to a baby, they look for mom to provide that comfort. For us in our lives, when things are uncomfortable, we need to look for God. And when we do, we'll find him and we'll recognize that he is going to always provide comfort. He will not leave you comfortless. He actually allows the Holy Spirit to live inside you so that he's ready and available all the time. But notice Paul's perspective. He says, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That is what the church is about. That is what we are to be for each other. And that's the perspective that we need to have. When I am going through a difficulty, God is wanting to comfort me and he's wanting to comfort me and then make me more equipped and more capable and more willing and able to then provide comfort to others. See, it isn't just, oh, I'll just let God comfort me. No, God wants to comfort us generally through each other. Now, if each other fails, God will find a way to come and to help us through and to help us make it through. But often, even when we say, yeah, nobody was really there, but God just got me through. If we would open our eyes, we would realize there were probably all kinds of people who were involved in that comfort. Comfort doesn't come just independently from God. Now you go, no, I was going through a tough time, and nobody cared, nobody listened, I didn't tell anybody, nobody knew, and somehow the Holy Spirit just came and comforted me and helped me through it without any 
help from any people, so I don't need people. I am a rock. I am an island. Um, How do you know somebody wasn't praying for you? Can you honestly say that God hadn't laid it on someone's heart to pray at a time when you were going through something that was difficult? This is what God wants to do. Now, don't oversimplify this. And Sometimes people will take this passage of Scripture and go, the reason why God makes you uncomfortable is so that he can comfort you so that then you can comfort others. The reason they're uncomfortable is so that you can comfort them so that God can comfort them through you. And God creates all this discomfort so that we can learn to comfort each other. I don't know about you, but if that's all it is, I'm not thinking that's the greatest idea. You know, is, is that really God? He deliberately hurts us so that he can make us feel better? Is, is God the type who will come and beat you over the head so that then, oh, he can stroke you and make you feel better? That when he gets through pounding on you, it'll just feel so good when he stops that you go, wow, God, you're so good. No, no, you're not good. You're not, oh, oh, thanks. Yeah, you're, you are good right now. But oh, oh no, you're, no, it, it's not that. We know from scriptures and we know from experience, this world is uncomfortable because something's desperately wrong with it. And it happened in Genesis chapter three. The, the fall of man and the existence of sin has severely damaged everything in this planet, everything in this universe, and as a result, we're all hurting. And sin is what's causing this, and and God doesn't want it to be this way. God's not, you know, the type of God who who goes, I'm glad you hurt, because then you'll really appreciate me when I when I make you feel better. No, we did this to ourselves, and this is the world that we live in. However, God has a divine purpose in everything that happens in the world. Uh, To the extent, I think of Joseph in, in Genesis, when after his brothers had sold him into slavery and everything, And then God used that to put Joseph in charge of Egypt to save the children of Israel from the famine. And, you know, all that happened because they did it. And when his brothers were kind of concerned when they figured out who Joseph was, Joseph said, don't worry. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God has intentions behind everything that happens, but... Don't then jump to a logical, theological conclusion that God wants it to be this way. That, to me, would be a theological error. I would call it blasphemous, but there might be Calvinists here who would take offense at that. Calvinists believe that somehow everything bad that happens is really good because it was all God's idea. And I understand why they believe that, and I don't. I, I and I know that if you're a Calvinist, you mean well, but for for my part, and I mean, people who are Arminians always think I'm a Calvinist. Calvinists always think I'm Arminian. All I know is the Bible tells us that the world is messed up because of our sin. 
not because God thought this was a great way to make people dependent on him. However, God causes everything to work together for good. So everything that people do that causes damage, God has a purpose behind it as well to work his plan out. I don't understand that. And the truth is, if I took a strong Calvinistic position, um, that would be much smarter because it would sound like I really understand everything that's happening. But I'm, I just don't want to blame God for things that I know aren't God's fault. And, and so I can't go to that length. But I, but I do understand somehow God will work through everything. Now, on the other end of the theological spectrum, and if I'm boring you, I'm going to get over this really quick, but there are people who go to um, the extent of extreme Arminianism, and then ultimately what has developed into what's called open, openness theology, where they come to the conclusion that you know, the future is open. God hasn't determined it all because they don't want to blame God for everything, which I think they're right about that. But then they say, therefore, God doesn't actually know what's going to happen. This is a surprise to God, just like it is to us, and God's going to find a way to all kind of work it out in the end, but he doesn't really, you know, isn't really involved in the process that much. He's just hoping to get lucky just like we are. And um, to me, that's a, that's a heretical position, denies God's omniscience, and, uh, and so therefore I could never run with that position. There are some good people who love God who have fallen into this position, but I think it's an error. However, in this passage, God lets us know that he works through everything. And therefore, if we are going through a difficult time, God will bring good out of it. And actually, you'll look and go, you know what? God worked this out so well I'm almost glad it happened this way. And because his comfort feels so good. And when I went through a hard time, it, it allowed me to find out who my friends were. And, and, I, and I saw people come alongside me and be supportive in such a way that it seemed like, wow, that was a good thing that bad things happened. It gets kind of confusing. But, but here he is saying, look, if God has helped you to get through something, the reason why he has done that, at least partially, is because he wants you to be there for others. He wants you to comfort others in the same way that he has comforted you. How did he comfort you? A lot of it was through others. Some of it was directly through the Holy Spirit personally with you. But again, you don't know how many others were involved in that. But it helps when you're going through a tough time, to realize that somewhere down the road, God may use this experience to help me to be there for someone. Now, if you have been in an excruciatingly painful time of your life and somebody was there for you, I mean, they were just really there for you. They didn't judge you. They didn't just keep sharing a bunch of verses with you constantly, thinking that would fix everything. And they were just supportive. They were sympathetic and comforting. If you've ever had that experience, then you understand how valuable it is to have someone to be there for you. 
And if you've had that experience, you should want to be there for others. Now, if you've had an experience where you were really hurting and you didn't have anyone there who said, hey, I understand, you know, let me walk through this with you, then you should understand even more how important it is that you make yourself available to God and to say, God, when I went through that, it felt like I was all alone. And I don't want anyone else to ever have to feel that way. And so God, use me. Let me be sensitive enough to you that when somebody's going through a tough time, I'll, I'll, I'll be there for them. I'll, I'll let them know they're not weird. It's not out of control. It's not hopeless. Hey, I've been through this, and, and I made it through on the other side. And I'm telling you, you'll be okay too. You'll, you'll make it. You can hang in there. You can do this. That's, that's a huge part of what we are to be for each other. And that's what Paul is really emphasizing to the Corinthians here, that if you go through something difficult and God comforts you, don't forget that. Now, a lot of times, if you've just recently come through something painful and you survived, um, that's not the time for you to try to help others because it just might bring, bring back a lot of painful memories. and you know, So uh, maybe you give it a little time, but to commit it to the Lord and go, God, um, take the hurt that I've had and the fact that I've survived and that you've been there for me, and somewhere, some way down the road, give me an opportunity to be there for somebody else, either like somebody was for you or like nobody was for you. I know people who you know, have gone through horrible things like you know, being molested and things like that. And a lot of times, people don't talk about that for years and years. It's just too painful. Sometimes they actually push it into the back of their memory and, and uh, you know, don't even, can't even deal with it themselves. Um, but it's, at some point, I believe God wants us to face up to our pain and to be strong enough to realize we've survived enough that we'll be there for others because there are a lot of people that need someone to just connect to them in a human way, in that way. It's in God's timing and as he strengthens us, but this is important, and, and it's, it's what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians. He, God comforts us. He's the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our tribulation in order that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now he says in verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. So our consolation, our comfort, also abounds through Christ. He connects our suffering with the sufferings of Christ. And Paul had a handle on that a lot. He talks about it a lot. He felt that what he was going through was connected intimately with Jesus suffering for us. Just turn over, just as an example, um, turn over to chapter 4 and verse 10. And he's talking about, well, look at uh, verse 8. 
We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Again, the sufferings of Christ abound in us. So our consolation also abounds through Christ. We aren't pained for our sin by our suffering. Jesus said it is finished. His suffering was all that was necessary for us to be redeemed. But our suffering connects us to him and and actually represents him in a way that sometimes is surprising to us. But, But Paul had a great handle on it. He understood that his suffering meant something in as an analogy to the suffering of Christ. Because when people see how we suffer, when people see that we suffer with the same kind of strength with which Jesus suffered, that we're willing to do that in order to represent him, sometimes our suffering speaks a whole lot more than what our words can speak. And sometimes God's allowing us to go through a hard time because that's what it's going to take for people to understand what Jesus did for us, that connection. Paul felt that way, talked about it a lot. And when we suffer, if we think about it in that way, we may discover a much greater significance in our discomfort than what we sometimes realize. That God turns it not only into good, but he can allow our suffering to be an example of of Jesus. I know, man, I, you know, I've had plenty of people in my life and people who I love and friends who have gone through horrible trials. And I can't always explain it, but when they do sometimes, I can see Jesus in them more than I see in the person who seems to have no problems. Just the graceful way in which they handle their pain. And, and most of them would say, I'm not being graceful at all. I'm miserable. And sometimes they go through times when they're really kind of mean and ornery. But still, you look at them. Watch a Christian when they're, when they're ready to die and they're suffering. And look really closely. And you will see a connection to our Lord and his suffering that I can't even explain to you, but I know it's true. And when we suffer, we're having an opportunity to represent him in a way that's much deeper than what we would ever intend. That, and, and I'd suggest to you, I, I know for me, some of the most profound spiritual experiences I've ever had weren't when I was suffering when I'm suffering, you know, I, I can't even feel Jesus there. But when I see other people suffer and Jesus being there for them, maybe they don't feel him there, but I can see it. And, and we can see Jesus and his suffering in each other in a way that we can't see it when we look in the mirror. 
And I'm quite sure that some of the people who I've seen Jesus in the most deeply, if I told them, I see Jesus in you, they would go, you've got to be kidding. Because it's not something you can see in yourself. It's something that others can see in the way you handle what you handle. And Paul saw that this was something that was connected to Christ's sufferings. And so as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. It's Christ who makes it possible for us to comfort each other. It's Christ who makes it possible for us to receive that comfort from God. He is involved in the entire process. And he says, if your suffering is great, then your comfort is that much greater. The blessings that God wants to do in your life, the things that he wants to accomplish through your difficult times will dwarf the amount of the pain that's involved in going through that process. Something way better, something... When God says he'll make something worth your while, he doesn't just make it like, yeah, I guess that's a fair deal. He overwhelms you with how much he does in the face of what you're struggling with. And so Paul is letting them know, first of all, so that they won't feel so bad for him, but also so that they won't be feeling so sorry for themselves. He says, okay, you're a child of God and you're suffering. I'm telling you, good things are going to come from this. Great things will be accomplished through this. His comfort is going to dwarf your pain. And that's something that we can know with assurance that the God who is our God, the God who is the God of all comfort, who will comfort us in every situation, that whatever it is that you're going through, not only is God going to bless you head and shoulders above what you're going through, but he will then multiply that blessing to you by allowing you to be there for others in their times of suffering. And they'll know what you've gone through, and just the fact that you're there for them, they will go, you get this. It means a lot. I, there are a lot of people who would try to be here and say something nice to me, and it's obvious that they don't get it. You know, I, I think when young people, um, and I used to be one, you, you try to minister to people when they're going through a tough time, and you do your best, but you don't know what it's like. I mean, you really, you know, what do you know about suffering? But when someone who has been through the crucible, someone who has been through difficult times and come out on the other side, when they come and stand alongside you, you go, I think you get it. And I really appreciate that, that you're here, that, that you're not just... And a part of it is when you've been hurt and damaged um, and people have tried to minister to you by saying stupid, trite things quoting posters from the Bible bookstore and, you know, telling you what, you know, I saw a card or, you know, I heard on Oprah or whatever, and, and it's supposed to, you know, some story about footprints in the sand is supposed to make you feel better. And you're like, you know that stuff doesn't work. And the more you go through difficult times, the more you realize 
that most of the things that people try to do to make people feel better don't work. And so finally, you just like, I don't have anything to say, but I'm just here. And something on my face tells me I get it. And, and my life shows that I, you know, I'm living this. I get this. I know this. None of us want to be really qualified to comfort others because it means you're going to be carrying a lot of scars in order to get there. But Paul said, it's really worth it. It's really a good deal. Once you've been battered and bruised and attacked and maligned and all of that kind of stuff, um, it does give you experience. It does help you that at least, you know, I think, I think um, if I was in the hospital with a serious illness, people who haven't been through that, I would kinda, you kind of hate to see them come walking in because you can see it on their face. They're freaking out. They can't talk about death or pain or, you know, and they're like, oh, you look awful. And, you know, or usually the way they show it is by going, you look great. And you're like, I've lost 120 pounds. <laughs> I don't look great. You know, I'm not stupid. But, but see, when somebody comes in and they go, yeah, I've been there and I'm here and I can talk normal to you, it's really comforting because you're finally getting it straight. There's that honesty that's there. And Paul says, you can't put a price tag on that kind of experience. He said, it's, it's good. It helps you to shut up and, and just be there. I'll shut up and move on. So, so he says now, if, verse 6, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we're comforted, it's for your comfort and salvation. There's a purpose in all of it. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. He says, I have hope for you. I'm not worried about you. Because I'm telling you, I know whatever you're going through, you're going to be okay. Good things are going to come out of it. God's going to use you because of what you've endured. And wherever there is affliction and discomfort, where God's concerned, comfort's coming. There's always a solution to every problem. There's always comfort to every pain. Comfort that completely overwhelms the amount of the, the pain that's there. Four, verse eight, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia. He had some problem. And when he call it, says Asia, it really means Turkey. Um, and they called uh, Asia Minor in those days, Asia. Had problems. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. He said, guys, I, you know, I don't want you to... to to think that I'm playing down what I've been through. Man, I went through a tough time, and I didn't think I was going to survive. Now, people speculate on what happened in Asia. Paul had so many bad things happen to him, you don't even know which one he's referring to. He was probably in, in Ephesus 
um, at one point thrown into the arena and fed to wild animals. And somehow he survived it. He passes it off like it was nothing over in 1 Corinthians 15. He makes a reference to it. But most people think that this is what he's referring to. And he's going, hey, you know, I survived, but I don't want you to think that when I was in the middle of it, I didn't think I was going to die. I didn't think I was going to get through it. It was it was really a difficult time. So he goes, I'm not just pretending like, oh, no, no big deal. Um, not at all. We despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. He goes, no, he took me down to the mat, and I thought I was going to die so that I would learn to trust in him instead of me. And if you're going through something that's difficult, the message is, if you think that you're not going to make it, good. Because you're starting to understand that you don't make it because you think you're going to make it. And you don't make it because of your strength. You don't make it because you have all the answers. You don't make it because you're just a really strong individual. He said, God will take you to the point where you think you're going to die, where you wish you would die, so that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. It's that position that says, this is going to kill me, and that's cool because then I'm going to heaven. (laughs) It's a powerful thing when you aren't afraid to die anymore. When you realize that if you die, God can raise the dead if he wants. And if he doesn't raise you to this world, which would really be a lousy deal, you're going to be in the presence of God. You're going to be fine. So trust in him, don't trust in you. So often we wear ourselves out trusting in ourselves. And Paul said, man, I thought I was a goner. And I learned from that. (laughs) That when I give up, I can still survive if God wants me to. I think we can sometimes waste an awful lot of energy trying to survive. Trying to hold ourselves together. Trying to maintain our sanity. Trying to be strong and tough. And we wear ourselves out just hanging on for dear life. Paul said it's a good thing when you just find out, you know, you weren't holding it together. It wasn't you being strong that got you through. It was ultimately he was using that, God was using that to bring you to the point where you'd realize you can't do it, where you'd realize that he could snuff you out at any second. And so just trust him. If you die, that's a good thing. If you live, that's a good thing too. Um, Paul had experiences that caused him to have this amazing boldness and this great perspective that he really didn't have anything to worry about anymore. Because if he hurt, then God was going to comfort him. And if God didn't and he died, he was going to heaven. So Paul talked about, I don't even know if I want to live or not. I mean, yeah, I got stuff I want to do. 
things I'm looking forward to. But at the same time, to be with God's way better. But I know you guys need me, but man, I can be with the Lord. He said, I'm, I'm really torn. <laughs> That's a great place to be. The world doesn't know what to do with, and the devil doesn't know what to do with someone who doesn't care if they live or die. <laughs> Somebody who just says, hey, man, if I live, I live to the Lord. If I die, I die to the Lord. If I live or die, I'm the Lord's. But Paul got there by almost dying. And he came through that, and it made him a person who was then much more capable to tell people. Being fed to the lions, not that big a deal, really. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it hurts. <laughs> but if God wants you to survive, you're going to survive. And then you can have a ministry talking to people who are about to be fed to the lions and telling them, yeah, I've been there too. Been there, done that. They don't give away t-shirts. It's just, <laughs> that's it. But I learned to trust in God. That's an example of him using his experience to remind others. And he says in verse 11, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. He said, you guys were a part of it. You prayed for us. And a lot of people did. And he said, the cool thing is, a lot of people were involved in this thing. When they heard, when they got the email that says, Paul's being fed to the lions, everyone started praying. I ended up surviving, and now everybody gets to celebrate and be a part of it and feel like, hey, I prayed for that one, and he made it. That's great. And so Paul says, see how this works? Everybody can be involved in ministry. Everyone can't do everything. Everyone isn't called to do everything. But everyone can pray for people who are doing things and then therefore be a part of that. Maybe you know someone who's going through a tough time and you go, I haven't really been through a tough time and I don't really know the person. I don't feel like I should show up at the hospital or you know, go up to them and try to talk to them. How about pray for them? Be a part of it in that way. You know, that, that can be so strategic. That can be so valuable. Paul understood this. He understood that it was all about getting a lot of people involved in victory, getting a lot of people involved in something that, that mattered, in something that provided comfort. When somebody tells me that they were praying for me, um, that means a lot, especially when they really were. You can tell some people say it and they weren't. Or people, hey, I'll be praying for you. Yeah, right. But if somebody really means it, no, I'm really, I was, I was praying for you. Here's what I was praying and what's God doing? It's like, wow, that's so great to be a part of that together, to be connected in this way. That's how the body is supposed to operate. With all of us ministering to each other, connected with each other. And prayer is one way to do that. Verse 12, for our boasting in this is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we're not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand, 
Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul said, look, I, I'm, I'm, I feel good about how I've ministered to you. But he said, I deliberately kept it simple. I didn't get really complex. Because I wanted people to know that I really meant it. I wanted people to see the sincerity, that this is real with me. And so he said, I, I just tell you what I've been told. I just deliver the straight scoop. And I, I, to me, this is, this is one of the most wonderful descriptions of what all of us ought to be like and what every ministry should always be like. To say, I am proud of the fact that it's simple, that it's sincere, that it's real, that I'm just taking what God says and, and trying to communicate that. Because it's so important that people know that we really believe this stuff, that we're really living it. And Paul's going, yeah, that's what, I'm not hiding my hard times. I'm challenging you to participate in ministering to others. And, but he goes, he said, that's what we did so that you'd see that this was real. I haven't pretended to be anything. I'm not slick. Now, if anyone knew how to do a slick presentation, it'd be Paul. He's a brilliant guy. He had a great education. But he deliberately came to them, as he talked to them in 1 Corinthians as well, in simplicity, just dishing out what God had told him, sharing God's word. And he said, you know I meant it. You know it was real. It was simple. It wasn't flowery. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't, you know, friendly to the masses. But it was real. And he goes, that's what I'm telling you when it comes to suffering. It's going to be worth it. Because you get to be involved in each other's lives as you have been involved in my life. Now he goes on in this next section and he, he talks about why he hadn't come. There were people who were criticizing him because he had said his intention was, I'm going to come to Corinth, then I'm going to go up to Macedonia, then I'm going to come back to Corinth, then I'm going to Jerusalem. That's the plan. So instead, he bypassed Corinth and he went to Macedonia. And so people who were critics were saying, said he was coming and he didn't come. He's afraid to come. He's afraid you guys are going to be mad at him because of what he wrote in the letter. And so now Paul explains that's not the deal at all. In this confidence, he says, I've been sincere with you. I've been honest. I've shot straight with you. I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. I could bless you some more to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? I mean, when I told you I was planning on doing it, do you think I just didn't mean it? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? Now, commentators differ on interpreting these next few verses, but I think in the context, the, most, the, the correct interpretation is that he's saying, 
okay, look, I said I was going to come, and I haven't come yet. You know I've always shot straight with you. Now, do you think I didn't come because I just meant it lightly? I didn't really care? Is that really what you think of me? Or, in the flesh, do you think I'm going to do what people would normally do and say, if I said I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it no matter what? Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. What he's doing is saying, in the flesh, people, if they make a commitment, and this is the way our whole society is geared, if you say you're going to do it, you're going to do it. If you end up changing your mind and not doing it for some reason, then you're going to get sued, breach a contract. So is that what you want me to do in the flesh? Just do it because I said I was going to do it? And our society trains us and brainwashes us that consistency is so important that if you say you're going to do it, you ought to do it, even if it's a stupid thing to do, even if it's wrong. Now, on the contrary to this, the Scriptures always teach, no, you don't do that. You, don't, you listen to the Spirit. You follow the leading of the Spirit. Everything needs to be up to His subjection. Jesus talks about this and says, don't swear, yeah, I'm going to do this. Just say you're going to do it, say you don't do it. James elaborates on it a little bit in James chapter 4 and James chapter 5. And, and James says, you know, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he goes, it's really best if you just say, look, if the Lord wills, then I'm don't say, I'm definitely going to do this no matter what. Um, no, if the Lord wills. That should be the assumption behind everything that we do. Today, my intention is to do this. But you know what? If something happens to where I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to fulfill that in the flesh. And, and how often we get roped into things because we say we'll do something, and now I feel like I have to do it. Even though I know now I shouldn't have said I was going to do it, it was a bad idea, should we do it anyway? Well, that's what the flesh does. And that's what people would like us to do. Hey, sorry, you made the deal, now you stick with it. Now, I love what Pastor Chuck used to always tell us. He said, we're all on a one-day contract. And that's the way we ought to live our lives. And that's what Paul was saying. Hey, no, I'm not going to in the flesh do it just because I said I was going to do it. Something changed. And therefore, if I feel like God doesn't want me to do it, I'm, I'm not going to do it in that same timing. It's kind of like somebody who marries someone because, well, we got engaged, so what could I do? No, you, you can back out. <laughs> you don't have to do this just because the invitations have been mailed, you know? And, and a lot of times people will make us feel guilty and say, you let me down because you said that you'd do this and now you didn't do it. Hey, when I said I was going to do it, I intended to do it. Even if I don't remember saying that I'm going to do it, right now I know it's stupid. Do you want me to do something stupid because I said something stupid before? Or do you want me to listen to what God tells me to do and do that? And Paul goes, or, or do you think I'm just being devious? I think we are way too focused on trying to be consistent, and we're much less focused than we should on trying to do what's right. And listen to the Spirit of God and do what He shows us to do. Yesterday is past. Now is now. 
And so he goes on to say, you know, um, if you want to know something, sure, it's God. As God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. He goes, look, I wasn't saying yes and meaning no. That wasn't my intention. But for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, or Silas, as we know him, and Timothy, wasn't yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. So he goes, what God says, you can count on it. What I say, I mean it at the time, but ultimately I want to listen to what he says. And therefore, if circumstances change, and in this case they had, and he goes on to explain it, he goes, I'd rather do what God tells me to do than to just do something because you think I ought to do it because I thought I would do it at one point, I said I would do it, and now things changed. He goes, no, don't confuse me with the word of God. God's word, you can count on it. He says it, and it's true, and it'll never change. But I am not speaking ex cathedra. I'm not the pope. I'm not, you know, you write down what I say, and it's scripture. No, I may have said something before, and I may have learned something since, and it's changed. Be thankful that I changed, rather than to see me as somebody who just goes, no, I'm going to do it because I said I'm going to do it. No, every day it's about listening to the Lord and and doing what he wants us to do. Um, Yeah, I can't really finish this, but I do want you to think of something, and then we'll wrap this up, this chapter up, and get into the next chapter next week. Um, It's interesting. Paul, I'll give you a preview. Paul decided not to go to Corinth as he had intended, because at that point, he didn't think it'd be healthy. He was talking about ministry, and he was saying, you know, you, get, you are uncomfortable, and then you get comfort, and you pass that on to others. But there's a reason why Paul, at that point, would not be comforting to them. And he sent other guys instead, because basically he was saying, I'm not the one to be seeing you about now. Now, I'm getting ready to, and I'm going to see you, but actually, I'm not the best person to comfort you. If I came to you right now, I'm bugged at you, and I would, I would be angry, and then you couldn't comfort me, and I couldn't comfort you, and it wouldn't work. In other words, Paul realized sometimes there are people other than me who are the best people to do the work of ministry and comfort. And this is really important for us to understand, that the body of Christ is huge. And if we get locked into always thinking that God has to do it the same way as before, and if we, if we close ourselves off to involving other people in ministry, we become sort of inbred. Um, and this happens in churches a lot, where you make your own friends, and you have these close relationships And those are the people that you hang out with. Those are the people that you talk to. Those are the people who pray for you. Those are the people you comfort. They comfort you. You comfort them. And nobody else gets involved in the process. Now, when that happens, here's what a church looks like. 
and I don't, I'm not objective enough to know if this is a major problem for us or not, but there are plenty of churches where people, you ask people in the church, is your church friendly? And they go, yeah, it's really friendly. And even people who come as first-time visitors, they go, yeah, it's a friendly place. Everybody's really nice. Everybody knows each other, loves each other. But the real test is, how easy is it to become a part of all of that? Because a lot of times we can develop cliques out of our habits and out of our patterns where we have a little small a group of people who are like, yeah, we're really tight and we're really friendly. But a person who comes in from the outside, they look at that and they go, wow, that's pretty cool. But after a few weeks, they go, I'm not feeling a part of this. I'm not connected. There are so many relationships and patterns and things like that that have formed here that they just won't let me in. I can't figure out how to pay my dues and be a part of all this. And what ends up happening is the church becomes a place where you, don't, you can't ever really get fresh blood flowing in new people getting involved because, well, that ministry has always been those people, and this is always these, and, and after church, I always talk to these guys, and those people all know each other, and they don't know me, and I don't think I... And so you end up with people like coming and going and not fitting in and all that, and, and having a hard time, like, I can't find a way to really get involved serving God because there's all these other people already doing all this stuff. And that is not healthy ministry. Um, it doesn't allow... God to do what he wants to do. And I'll tell you why. We are here for each other, to comfort each other, to encourage each other. But you know what? The people that you hang out with all the time, they've already heard all your stories. They already know who you are and what you are, and they know everything you have to say. And you find yourself in this rut where it's like, I'm having the same conversation with the same people all the time, and there isn't that ministry happening that God really wants to happen by getting other people involved. And Paul's emphasis is, this is for everyone. And, and as a result, he says, I wasn't the best person to come and comfort you guys right now. You needed other people to do it. That was God's plan. That's what he wanted to do. And I think it's something that we need to be very sensitive to in the body of Christ, is to say, God... Don't ever let us get into a rut. Don't ever let us form these little pockets of habit and these little parties and cliques and where what I have to do is start my own because nobody will let me in theirs. And then you find out it's not even comforting because you know what? Yeah, I hear you. You have those same prayer requests that you always have, and I ask you how you're doing, and you're doing the same as you've always been doing, and it's like, da-da-da, same old thing, this, is, this rut is happening, when, you know, there are people who might be in this building right now that you've never met who think your story is fascinating. People who've heard it already don't. And, and there may be people who would pray with a real fresh perspective for you, you ever notice how when you meet someone new, it's like they're really impressive? And you look at the people that you hang around all the time and they're really boring? <laughs> it's because the body of Christ is supposed to be constantly flowing, bringing in new. It, it should be a place where, as a family, that's what's happening 
Paul's connection with Corinth, he's not in Corinth, he's other places. Timothy, Titus, you know, Silas, all these guys are flowing around, moving around, things are happening. And Paul's like, this is the way it's supposed to work. You know, it may be that the people you're supposed to comfort aren't the people that you comfort every week. Maybe there's somebody else that God has brought along that either has something to really offer you or you have something that they desperately need, but we fall into these patterns that are ultimately just destructive and harmful. And it's hurtful to people who need ministry because they can't connect, and it's, it's fruitless for everyone who's already connected because nothing new and fresh is happening. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I bet you've been there probably on both sides of that thing. But it's something that Paul has a a great sense of, and he addresses it in a lot of different ways, but what he sees happening is, you guys, everyone has a place. And that place means that there's always going to be someone who needs you. But you have to be have your eyes open to that. You have to be sensitive to that. You have to let the Spirit lead you in that. Because when I said I was coming to Corinth, I thought I'd be the perfect person to deal with you, but God let me know, no, got some other people that are going to work out in that place. I have something else for you to do. And that's important. And I don't know if I'm explaining it well, and we've gone over time, so it's just something that you'll have to think about and pray about, and then next Wednesday we'll kind of pick up where we've left off and talk about it a little more, and hopefully if it doesn't make sense to you now, if the Lord wills, and I'm still here next week, I'll try to make sense of all of it. Um, God, thank you for this evening. Bless the rest of our night. Bless our fellowship. Bless our church. Help us to be open to um, opportunities and relationships and connections whereby you may have perfectly prepared us and equipped us through our pain to be there for someone else. And you may be leading us to someone we don't know who's, who's going to say just the right thing to us that really helps us and encourages us. Help us to function like a body, and we thank you. Bless the rest of our week. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, see you guys. Oh, yeah. Huh? Yeah, guys, if you can hang around, sorry I kept you late, but chairs need to be stacked up and just left here in the sanctuary.